Acts chapter 2, we're going to read from uh, verse 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above the signs above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for um, your church, uh, your bride, who you have called to be on mission for you to reach this world for Christ. And God, help us to be uh, active and mobile and, uh, and, and, and a very much part of, of your mission. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Bill, for reading a great chapter in the book of Acts. In fact, Acts chapter 2 is probably one of the most, if not the most important chapter in the book of Acts, uh, a very significant chapter that we're going to look at today. And as we do, let me begin with this question. What are you powered by? What powers you? What pumps you up? Well, some people are powered by working out and getting in shape. In fact, here in Kansas City, we now have 24-hour fitness, anytime fitness, and planet fitness that you can join, pay money to, and become a member of. And many people do. They are powered by working out, getting in shape. 
Some people are powered by vitamins and supplements. In fact, more than 150 million Americans each year spend $28 billion on herbs, vitamins, minerals, hormones, and other pills to power them up, to give them energy, to help them live. My family is trying to power up by drinking fruit and vegetable smoothies now. We got a, uh, what, what is it called, darling? We got a, for, we got a Nutribullet for Christmas. And uh, one of those little gasmos that helps you make smoothies, and you put any, really anything you want in it. It's, it's really kind of cool. And uh, in my family, my boys included, myself, we've been using that Nutribullet to make these smoothies, these vegetable smoothies, and these, these fruit smoothies to kind of power us up, to give us energy. It's been great. Although I'm not sure how nutri it is when you add chocolate and ice cream to it. People today are powered by numerous different things. But what we're going to see is, is that the church of Jesus Christ is powered by the mighty spirit of the living God. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And the promise of the Father being the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus told them that He was leaving, but He would send the Spirit to uphold them, to strengthen them, to comfort them, to encourage them, to motivate them, and most of all, to empower them to continue the mission that Jesus began. And since Jesus' ascension into heaven, listen, that's exactly what these 120 disciples have been doing. They've been waiting for the Spirit to come. Also during that 10-day wait, between the ascension of Jesus and this day, this, the day of Pentecost as it's known, these disciples became increasingly aware of their need for the Spirit's power to come upon them. Think about this with me. They had known Jesus' presence for three years while he was on earth and while they followed him. They interact with him daily. And so they were in the presence of Jesus Christ. And even during the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, they had been repeatedly blessed by his interactions, his teachings, as he come and went teaching them. But during these 10 days, the disciples undoubtedly began to feel a little empty. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Spirit has not yet come upon them. And they're feeling this need for power. They're becoming aware of their emptiness. But their emptiness also made them ready for this very day, the day of Pentecost. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? The passage that Bill read for us. What exactly took place here? Well, that's the question that I hope to answer this morning. What happened on Pentecost is one of those, let me tell you, epic moments in history. It's right up there with creation. It's up there with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, with his crucifixion, and even his resurrection. Pentecost, it marks the birth of the church by the coming of the Spirit. One author writes at this writes and says, Pentecost was a staging post on a much grander vista of biblical history. It signaled that something had been done, the atoning work of the Messiah, and that something had not yet been fully accomplished, the gathering of the people of God 
into the visible church of Jesus Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit was the result of the former and for the enabling of the latter. And so we could summarize the purpose of the Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost in this way. Notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. The purpose of Pentecost. Pentecost, basically, is God equipping the church with His power, the power of the Spirit, to proclaim the gospel so he will be glorified among the nations. That's the reason for Pentecost. That's the purpose that we see taking place here in Acts chapter 2. What happened on this day, what happened on Pentecost, was really all a part of the continuing work of Jesus Christ. Jesus explained in Acts chapter 1 verse 5 that the disciples would be, quote, baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they would receive power then to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why? So that God will be glorified among the nation. That's the ultimate goal here. That's the ultimate purpose here. Or as Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk writes in 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the whole point of Pentecost is the worship of God by all peoples. That's God's plan from the beginning. That's God's plan from the beginning of history. And you read that plan all through the Bible. That's what the Bible's message is all about. The plan of redemption of mankind so that man will glorify God. And all peoples will do that. And the way God is accomplishing that purpose is by equipping his church, which, folks, that's us, with power to proclaim the gospel to all peoples. Jesus told Peter, back in Matthew 16, 18, that he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Therefore, the church now is God's means of taking the gospel to all the nations. Until this time, though, until this day in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, until that time, though, God's people consisted of who? Israel, the children of Israel. And it was through them, the nation of Israel, that God worked his covenant promises to form a people for himself. But now God was forming the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles to proclaim the gospel to all peoples so that he will be glorified among the nations. That's the ultimate point of this passage here in Acts chapter 2. Now notice how Luke begins this historic day in verse 1. Look at what he says. Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, you may be wondering, just as I wondered, well, what is the day of Pentecost? What is that day? Well, the day of Pentecost is, is really, it's, it's, just a, it's a Jewish holiday. It's an annual Jewish holiday or Jewish feast or celebration. And they're really, it's a celebration for the Jews of recounting or remembering or even celebrating the giving of the law. What we know is the Ten Commandments. When God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And now, every year, the Jews would celebrate that momentous historic day in which God gave the law to Moses 
to his people. The day of Pentecost. Pentecost actually means 50th because this Jewish celebration was held exactly 50 days after Passover. Passover occurred in the mid, uh, mid-April, so Pentecost was held at the beginning of June. And the reason I'm telling you that is because it meant that Pentecost, that Jewish holiday, and there were three primary Jewish holidays, and all of all the Jewish holidays, this one in particular was the most attended. It was the best attended by all the Jews. And so, and the reason is because the weather conditions and the traveling conditions were at their prime. And so now they could come from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. Let me tell you, it was the perfect time for the Spirit of God to come. So let's look at it. I want to answer three questions in relation to what happened on this day. And the first question is, obviously, well, what did happen? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Well, the disciples have moved, most people believe, most scholars believe, from the upper room in Acts chapter 1, uh, probably to some room in the temple, when suddenly something happened that was extraordinary in both sight and sound. Look again how Luke describes it in verses 2 through 4. He says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire. And one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so what we see here are three signs that mark the Spirit's coming or the, or the phenomena of the Spirit's coming. Luke describes it in this way. Number one, that there was a sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind that filled the whole house. Now you almost get the impression though that Luke is, is struggling here to find just the right words to describe the Spirit's coming. Luke adds this little phrase, the wind was as of a mighty rushing wind. And the tongues were as of fire. There's something extraordinary here going on with the Spirit's coming. It, it wasn't literal flames of fire, but it was like fire. It wasn't exactly a rushing mighty wind, but it was like a mighty rushing wind. They did not feel the wind, but they heard a sound from heaven that filled the whole room. And this sound was loud enough that others could hear. In fact, those others, it, it, it drew their attention, their curiosity, and it gathered a crowd of people to find out, hey, what is going on? It's no, it's no different than when you're driving or you're in your neighborhood and you hear sirens. And you're like, what, what, what's, what's going on? And some people follow and they want to find out what is going on. And the same thing's happening here. Both the Hebrew and Greek words for wind and spirit are even the same. An example of this is in Ezekiel 37 when Ezekiel uses the word wind to describe the spirit of God moving over a valley of dry bones so that suddenly there was a clattering of bones as they they came to life. And at Pentecost, the reviving winds of the spirit came upon these disciples, these 120 with incredible spiritual life and power. So first of all, this first mark or sign of the Spirit's coming was there was a a rushing mighty wind. Number two, there was an appearance, an appearance of divided tongues of fire resting on each person. 
Now, that's a strange sight, to say the least. Fire, though, like wind, is a symbol of the presence of God all throughout the Bible. It was a burning bush that symbolized God's presence to Moses back in Exodus. Uh, it was a pillar of fire that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. And now here, you find fire at Pentecost, which indicated that God's presence was, was resting on the disciples. Furthermore, notice that the tongues of fire were divided and rested on each one of the disciples. So, in other words, the presence of God in the Old Covenant was localized in the temple. But now, this suggests that under the New Covenant, we are all temples of the Holy Spirit, emphasizing the personal relationship to God that we all have with Him through the Spirit. And so God's presence also appeared as tongues of fire to symbolize God's power now through the verbalization or the vocalization of the gospel. It's as if God is giving them this, this visual picture that the power of God will be manifest through the speaking of the gospel or the proclamation of the gospel, just as Jesus promised back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The third thing we see is that there was speaking in various foreign languages by the disciples. This was a miracle of speaking foreign languages, and get this, that the disciples had never learned before. Look how Luke describes this miracle in verses 5 through 8. He says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, well, what sound? Well, the sound from heaven like wind. The multitude came together, and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were sudden, in which we were born? It was as though suddenly, imagine this, you could suddenly speak fluent Chinese, fluent French, or fluent Swahili, having never so much as taken a five-minute lesson in Chinese, French, or Swahili. But now you can speak it fluently. Amazing. And then Luke lists 15 different geographical locations from which thousands of Jews have come from in traveling to Jerusalem for Passover season. And the key to this list is in verse 5. Look at it. That it represents men from every nation under heaven. This table of nations is somewhat similar to the to the table of nations that is listed in Genesis 10 following the Tower of Babel in Genesis 9. And uh, if you're familiar with the Tower of Babel, that's when God confused the people uh, by causing the people to speak in different languages so they couldn't understand each other. And it's so now, it's almost what we have here, it's as if there is a, a reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel here at Pentecost. And the barrier of human languages was for a moment at least broken down, and the people heard the gospel in their own native language. Now you just got, you got to step back from this, because what can happen, it's easy to get lost in these details. But get the big picture. What we have here is a beautiful picture 
God is giving us here, that the gospel is for all peoples of the world. We're seeing a microcosm of that, a little glimpse of that right here in Acts 2, and then as it is fulfilled through the rest of the book of Acts and even to today. And we get a glimpse of that right now. What we see here is a glimpse of God's ultimate purpose, that the gospel spread to the very ends of the earth, that every tribe, every nation, tongue, and people would bow down and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And that's what God is showing these disciples here. It's what he's giving us a picture of. And this is all an indicator of the historical uniqueness of Pentecost. It marks the point at which the focus of God's redemptive purposes is no longer upon one tiny race of people. In a geographical landmass, smaller than the size of Lake Michigan. Oh no, that is now changing. Instead, God's focus, his, his redemptive purposes, is extending now to the whole world. And we should be thankful for that because that includes us as Gentiles. We're now part of this. Now before we move on, let me briefly deal with the question here that some of you may, may be wondering. Well, is the gift of tongues given to the church today? Because after all, these disciples are speaking in tongues through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gave them utterance to speak in this foreign language here. So if the gift is the gift of tongues given to the church today, well, some argue that the sign of being baptized with the Spirit is speaking in tongues and that if you have not done that in your life yet, then you are lacking a vital spiritual experience. And you're missing out on something. Well, as a church, we believe otherwise. And here's why. First of all, what happened on Pentecost, it was the ability to speak in known foreign languages that you have not studied, rather than some angelic ecstatic utterances, which is really just a nice term for gibberish. Also, the miracle of tongues was one of those signs or marks of apostleship that was given to the church to confirm the witness of these apostles of that day during this transition period. Remember, I've said, we've, we talked about how the book of Acts is a transition book from the Gospels to the New Testament church. But then as that transition period faded, so did this. This apostolic witness, or this witness of these apostles here, was an unrepeatable and foundational ministry that served to establish the New Testament church and the supernatural signs that were performed during this course of establishing the church served to testify to this unique time period. Today, what is the main evidence that you are filled with the Spirit? When you read Paul's epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, what's the main evidence that we're filled with the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, which is all about our godly conduct. That's the main evidence. And throughout the book of Acts, another evidence we've seen of what the Spirit does for us is it gives us boldness to proclaim. We'll look at that next Sunday a little bit. In fact, it gives us conviction and courage to proclaim the gospel. 
No doubt, what happened on Pentecost was a result of the Spirit's coming, which brings us to our second question. What was the response? What was the response to what happened on Pentecost? Well, Luke tells us the response in verses 7, and again in verses 12 through 13. Notice what he writes. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. So we have a twofold response to what happened here on this day. Some marveled at what they saw and what they heard. They marvel. In fact, Luke uses several words to describe the reaction of some. He, he says they were amazed, they marveled, they were perplexed by all this. And I'm sure if we would have, we would have responded in the same way if we had heard a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind or saw tongues of fire resting on people's heads. But what really, notice this, what really caught the people's attention was not necessarily the sound or even this appearance of, a, of tongues of fire. What really caught their attention was that these Galileans, who they didn't think very highly of, were now speaking in languages that they could understand. The sight and sound of the presence of God is truly amazing. And to respond with awe is very, very appropriate. In fact, just think, the very presence of God was in their midst, and some marveled. And some were amazed and perplexed. In fact, we might be tempted to say, man, if only we had that again, then everyone would believe. But what does Luke tell us was the response of others in verse 13? That others mocked what they saw and heard. And they mocked by saying they are full of new wine. In other words, their explanation was that these people are drunk. Now this is a, an example that miracles in and of themselves do not necessarily convert people to repent and believe. Listen, you couldn't have a greater miracle than what you had right here on the day of Pentecost. And yet not everyone believes. They're mocking this. And so miracles in and of themselves never believe. Miracles simply point to the person behind the miracles. Miracles point to the person of Jesus Christ, and you see that all through the Gospels. In fact, in the Gospels, when miracles were performed, there always needed to be an explanation for those miracles so that people can understand what was going on, and it's no different even here. In fact, I do find it interesting that these mockers are accusing the disciples of being drunk, for wine is contrasted with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says when a person is filled with alcohol, they tend to lose control of themselves and they even end up making a fool of themselves. But when a person is filled with the Spirit, Paul says he has self-control. And we glorify God with our life then. All of this just leads to our third question. Well, what does this mean? What does what happened on Pentecost mean? And I love the question that some of the people asked in verse 12. Look what they say. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? That really is the question we're all asking. That's really the most important question we can answer this morning. And guess who answers this question? Peter does. Look what Peter says in verses 14 and 15. But Peter 
standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. What is the third hour of the day? 9 a.m. Third hour of the day. Jewish custom is 9 a.m. And so what Peter is doing here, I kind of like this a little bit about Peter, he's injecting some humor in this answer here. And telling them, basically, hey, it's way too early for us to be drunk. This is nonsense. Good Orthodox Jews would never eat or drink before 9 a.m. on the Sabbath or on a holy day such as Pentecost. So get that out of your minds, Peter is saying. Peter basically stands and explains that here's what this means. Notice this in your notes. That what they saw and heard was not the result of drunkenness, but it was the evidence of the Spirit's coming. Peter then explains that the outpouring of the Spirit that they just saw and heard was spoken by the prophet Joel. And notice what Peter says. He then quotes Joel in verses 17 through 21 when he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Basically, what Peter is doing is he's taking Joel's prophecy about the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days, and he's applying it to the outpouring of the Spirit that they just saw and heard on this day of Pentecost. And basically, he's telling them, listen, this is that day. This is that same Holy Spirit that Joel wrote about. It's here now. In other words, Peter is saying, the last days are here, and the Holy Spirit has come. And so what you read about in Joel, this prophecy, he's applying it to their situation right now. We are living in the last days. Such an announcement would seem incredible to these Jews because they thought, in their thinking, that God's Spirit was given only to a few select people. Kind of like super Christians. Only for the, the super elite. They were the ones that got the Spirit of God. But here, on this day of Pentecost, oh my, what you see are 120 ordinary men and women enjoying the blessing of the same Holy Spirit that had empowered people like Moses and David and Elijah and other prophets of the Old Testament. And they are blown away by this. Indeed, it was the dawning of a new age. The last days in which God would bring to completion His plan of salvation for all peoples. Jesus has just finished the great work of redemption with His crucifixion and His resurrection and His ascension to the heaven. And nothing more now had to be done. The only thing left was what? 
to continue the mission that Jesus began of proclaiming the gospel to all peoples by the power of the Holy Spirit that has just now come upon them. And so the invitation to the world, and I love how Peter ends, is this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because at this point in time, that is the only thing that matters. As we are in the last days. And the only thing left to happen is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so before that day comes, he is urging his hearers, listen, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what's the significance of all this, this though? The significance of the Spirit's coming. What does the Spirit's coming mean then for us today, right here in 2015? For you, for me, for our church. Well, let me give you two. Number one, first of all, what happened at Pentecost signaled the presence of God's Spirit to dwell in His people for the very first time. Now, folks, listen to me. I know sometimes, man, we sit here and we just like, oh, you know, and we just think stuff is no big deal. But this is huge. This is monumental. This is a radical shift from the ministry of the Spirit before this day, the day of Pentecost, to after the day of Pentecost. You see, before the day of Pentecost, the Spirit, listen, it did empower people for serving God. You see that all through the Old Testament. But the Spirit did not permanently indwell them. The Spirit would come and go upon people. And in the upper room, Jesus told the disciples that He would send His Spirit to be with them forever. And in fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Acts chapter 1-5, the disciples were now baptized with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts 8, the Spirit was poured out on the Samaritans. And in Acts 10, the same thing happened with the Gentiles. And these transitional outpourings of the Spirit follow the pattern, basically, of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, in, in essence, it united everyone as members of the same body of Christ into the church of Jesus Christ. But now, since the day of Pentecost, now, for you and I, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, what happens? I mean, you get the Spirit. You receive the Spirit at the moment of your salvation. And He dwells within you permanently. Paul states it this way in Romans 8, 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, several terms are used with regard to to the Spirit's coming in these first two chapters of Acts. Uh, you go to Acts, back to Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and it says the Spirit baptizes. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says the Spirit comes upon. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says the Spirit is received. And here in Acts 2, 4, it says they 
were filled with the Spirit. Now these disciples are spanning in Old Covenant and New Covenant. And they're, they're, they're spanning that. They are living at the very time when the Spirit is being sent down from heaven to take up permanent residence in them for the very first time. And Luke wants us to see something here. You say, what am I supposed to see? Luke wants you to see that these disciples are both baptized with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit at the same time on the day of Pentecost. And you're like, okay, I see that, but big deal. What's that mean for me? Well, let me try to explain it. The baptism of the Spirit simply means that I now belong to Jesus Christ, and I belong to His church. Historically, this first took place at Pentecost here in Acts 2. Today, it takes place at the moment of your salvation. And get this, it is something that God does for us once and for all when we believe in Jesus Christ. We are united with Christ in His church. Paul uses the phrase, our union with Christ. In other words, we are put into the family of God. And we're sealed by that through the Spirit. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. What is that one body? It's the church of Jesus Christ. What we would call the universal church or the family of God. And at the moment of salvation... We are, quote, baptized by the Spirit, and we are put into that. We are with Christ, in Christ, and Christ is in us. But there is also a different term here that Luke uses that is slightly different for us today, and that is the filling of the Spirit. So you have the baptism of the Spirit, but you also have the filling of the Spirit, which means that I now live for Christ by walking in the Spirit and being controlled by the Spirit. We're commanded, do you realize, to be filled with the Spirit? That's a command to us. Paul commands that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit, which happens repeatedly as we empty ourselves and yield ourselves to the Spirit and rely on the power of the Spirit who already dwells in us permanently. Paul states it like this in Galatians 5.16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That walking by the Spirit happens when I empty myself, when I yield to the Spirit, when I submit to the Spirit, when I let myself be controlled by the Spirit. I am filled then by the Spirit. Not that I need any more of the Spirit, because I already have all the Spirit I can get at the moment of salvation, but it's the idea I'm now being controlled by the Spirit that dwells in me. All of this took place on this day for these disciples. For us, it happens at the moment of salvation, and then once we are saved, we are to yield ourselves to the Spirit on a daily basis. Here's the point. What happened at Pentecost means that God's Spirit came to dwell in God's people, and that's a radical shift. That is a radical thought. It means we have God's power dwelling within us. We are without, in a sense, excuse, in the sense of saying, I can't. 
To say, I can't live on mission. To say, I can't proclaim. I can't be a witness, folks, is really to sabotage the power of the Spirit in you. It's to deny this great gift that God has given us. So we can. We are gifted with the Spirit. It's a wonderful thing. You have the power. But not only that, you say, what's the power for? What's the purpose of the power of the Spirit in our lives? Well, that brings us to the second significance here. Number two, what happened at Pentecost signaled the purpose of God's power to proclaim the gospel to all peoples. You see, the primary purpose, as we already said, of Pentecost is now we have God's power to proclaim the gospel. You see, before, the Spirit came and went. And it seemed like only the the priests and the prophets had this power, and they did all the speaking. They did the proclaiming to God's people in the Old Testament. But now, we as God's people, we've been gifted the power to what? Proclaim the gospel to all peoples. That's the purpose. We have the power of the Spirit to continue the mission Jesus began. The promise Jesus made back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is now fulfilled. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be what? Witnesses. So you cannot separate the Spirit of God from being witnesses for God. Power, witness, they go together. And to separate them is to separate what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. What happened at Pentecost gives us a glimpse into how the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples. And the great question that must have been weighing on these disciples' minds was, how in the world were they going to do that? After all, that's quite a large task, is it not? I mean, how was this ragtag group of disciples who so miserably failed the Lord going to accomplish that mission, the Great Commission? Well, we could ask the same question of ourselves. How are we, who also so fail the Lord so miserably at times, how are we going to accomplish this mission? Well, here's the answer. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. What's the difference between the way we experience the power of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost and after Pentecost? Well, consider an illustration and then we'll close. Picture a huge dam. Not a small dam, a huge dam for hydroelectric power under construction. In fact, go ahead and picture one like the Oswan High Dam on the Nile River. This dam is 370 feet high. It's 11,000 feet across. Egyptian President Nasser commissioned its construction in 1953, and it was finally commissioned completed in 1970. The following year, a grand dedication ceremony was held and the 12 turbines with their 10 billion kilowatt an hour capacity were unleashed with enough power to light every city in Egypt. Now the whole time that dam was under construction, the Nile River wasn't completely stopped. 
even as the reservoir was being filled, part of the river was allowed to continue to flow down its natural channels. As you can imagine, the people downstream depended on it. They drank of this river. They washed in this river. They, it watered their crops. It turned their meal wheels. But on the day when the reservoir poured through the turbines, let me tell you, a power was unleashed that spread far beyond the few people downriver and brought possibilities they only dreamed of. Pentecost was just like that. You see, before this day, the day of Pentecost, the river of God's Spirit blessed the people of Israel, and it was their very life. But after Pentecost, the power of the Spirit spread out to light the whole world, and it changed everything. So how then do we receive the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost, man, it just, it just came down upon them. They were clothed with it, came upon them. doesn't happen like that today. So how do we receive this same spirit? Well, Peter tells us how at the end of his sermon in this same chapter. In Acts 2, verse 38, he simply says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's the requirement. Repentance of sin and emptiness of self. That's basically the requirement. It's a turning from sin and believing in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and Lord. And when we do that, we receive the gift of the Spirit. It indwells us permanently. We now have access to something that God's people only dreamed about. In other words, we now have power to proclaim. Proclaim what? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all peoples. That's the purpose of the Spirit at Pentecost. That's still the purpose of the power of the Spirit in our lives even today. It's the power to proclaim. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for this passage in Acts, but Lord, most of all, we thank you for your spirit that has come. And we thank you that you have not left us alone to fulfill your mission, but you have given us your spirit, a spirit that empowers us to fulfill the mission, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, a power that makes a difference in our lives as we yield ourselves to it and are controlled by it. Lord, help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us to live by the Spirit. Help us to rely on the power of the Spirit each and every day as Christ followers so that we may fulfill the mission. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Praise team's going to sing just one chorus, and as they do, let me encourage you. Do business with God. Maybe you've been trying to live on your own, in your own power instead of the Spirit's power. This will be the time to confess that sin. Empty yourself and ask Christ, Lord, I want to live by your spirit for the purpose of proclaiming.